Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today marks the reboot of our Journal Club series, so you can look forward to seeing these episodes interspersed in our regular feed. This episode is a scientific deep dive on recent research published by Ben Cravat, professor in the Department of Chemistry at the Scripps Research Institute and co-founder of a diverse suite of chemoproteomic companies such as Vividion and Belhara Therapeutics, as well as Gene Yeo, professor of cellular and molecular biology at the University of California, San Diego, and co-founder of Locana Bio, Eclipse Bio, and Trotana Therapeutics. Ben and Gene are joined by Vanita Agarwala, general partner at A16Z Bio and Health, and bio deal team member Brian Faust. Together, they'll discuss some unexpected mechanistic results of finding covalent binders to a class of proteins that we're just starting to understand, RNA-binding proteins, and the subsequent translational implications that they described in a recent paper published by the Cravat and Yo Labs in Nature Chemical Biology. The paper outlines a potentially new therapeutic approach that uses small molecules to fundamentally rewire transcriptional networks in cancer cells. Let's get started. Brian, before we start chatting with the authors of this paper, let me ask you to just help orient us to RNA binding proteins. What are they and why are they so interesting? Yeah, so we're going to be spending a fair bit of time today talking about these RNA binding proteins or RBPs for short. They're keynotes in the regulation of gene expression. And really the name RNA binding protein is a bit of a catch-all descriptor for this family of proteins in our cells that, you know, of course do bind RNA, but also exhibit a huge range of activities beyond this, such as, you know, determining where RNA transits to in the cell, how it's spliced together to form the recipe for protein synthesis, you know, and also even determining the ultimate rate of transcript decay to shut down protein synthesis. And what's fascinating is that they exist in these extremely complex regulatory networks where a single RBP can mediate the fate of hundreds of different transcripts. And given that there are thousands of individual RBPs in the cell, it's somewhat unsurprising that their malfunction can lead to aberrant cell growth and ultimately cancer development. And play a role in a variety of other human diseases, as we'll hear from the authors of this paper later. So let's dive in. Ben and Jean, we are thrilled to be chatting with you both about this exciting recent publication. Thanks for making some time. First, how did you both become collaborators? What is the backstory on this paper? 
we didn't expect, obviously, with a phenotypic screen to necessarily land in RNA binding protein space. And it's um, our lab is a chemical biology lab that broadly explores small molecule interactions with proteins in the cell. We, we, we frequently land on proteins that uh, we don't have personally any expertise in. And RNA binding proteins definitely qualified in that regard. We had never worked on them before. And we're just very fortunate that uh, Gene's lab was just down the street at UCSD. And he's, a, of course, a world's expert on both focused as well as on global approaches for understanding RNA binding protein function. And so we really hit it off with the idea that could we begin to int introduce uh, chemical probes or small molecules into those explorations, right? So they could integrate into genes platforms for mapping global interactions between say RNA binding proteins and RNAs, or to look at splicing effects of compounds um, that interface with RNA binding proteins, for instance, and having the collaboration be local and having, I think both labs having a strong balance between technology innovation and also deep explorations of biological questions led to, I think, a, a very productive, you know, sympatico interaction where I think we, we both labs, despite having very different backgrounds and expertises, think about science in a similar way. It, it wasn't a specific, uh, let's work on no-no. It was more, let's talk about RNA binding proteins. And then, you know, Ben had this uh, cool um, uh, observation on no-no. Uh, and I was like, this is neat. Let's look at um, mechanism. And yeah, that started the, the collaboration and we have many more collaborations. So it, it's been great. So you had a hunch that RNA binding proteins could be interesting, that chemical probes against RNA binding proteins could be interesting. And so Gene, your biology lab and RNA expertise came together with Ben, your chemical biology expertise. But then interestingly, while you had a hunch that RBPs might play a role, let's say in oncology and in certain the regulation of oncology targets, the chemical screen you designed was not designed to target any RBPs per se, and you didn't directly prosecute this hypothesis, and instead you designed a phenotypic screen, or for those listening, an empiric readout of which chemical probes produce a certain desired phenotypic end state. When do you prefer a phenotypic screen versus a very specific target binding? Yeah, I don't think I, think I have a preference for one versus the other. I think they have very complementary paths to biological discovery, right? So I, I think that that starting with the target first, obviously it, it, you have much more certainty around how your compounds might be working, right? So if we have a covalent ligand that binds a specific target, we can make a mutation in the site it binds and create a resistance mutant. And But then you're, you're really at the mercy of what is known about or what, what you can imagine that target may do in your functional assays, right? Well, the, the, the magic of phenotypic screening is it can allow you to uncover functions you didn't possibly contemplate for not only the small molecule, but the protein that it ultimately operates through. So in this case, a phenotypic screening for us was exciting because it was asking a question that has been very difficult to answer through a target-specific approach, which is, is there a general way to suppress the androgen receptor in prostate cancer cells through regulating all of its various transcripts, including a splice variant. So we didn't know how to do that through a specific target, right? So, so then it made sense to do a phenotypic screen. Makes sense. And what has been so vexing about the androgen receptor for people to, to understand? I mean, it's a receptor with clear ligand. It's already targeted in prostate cancer by a variety of existing standard of care therapies. So what has made the androgen receptor target so vexing for the field? 
to get a full handle on. Yeah, well, I think like any outstanding oncology target, the challenge with the androgen receptor is that it's so important for prostate cancer cells to grow that they figure out ways to resist the drugs that initially work, right? The drugs that initially work, the antagonists are fantastic drugs, right? But just ultimately over time, like almost all cancer cell states, the prostate cancer figures out, in this case, very creative ways to resist, right? Including making splice variants that lack the ligand binding domain that still appear to have some oncogenic capacity and then making mutations in the ligand binding pocket that will not only block ligand binding, but in some cases allow ligands to become agonists rather than antagonists, right? So it's like the most subversive type of resistance mechanism you can have where now the drug works for the cancer rather than against it. So I think that's just the net, in all honesty, I think that's the sort of standard way that oncology drug development occurs, right? You, you, you hit the, on, the oncogenic driver, you get some therapy, and then it ultimately resists. And then you have to be able to find another way to suppress that oncogenic driver. And so it would be particularly amazing if we could find a small molecule approach to lower androgen receptor levels in cancer cells that worked across all different splice variants and multiple different muta mutated versions of the receptor, multiple different isoforms of the receptor. And that's part of the goal that you set out to achieve by looking in a phenotypic screen where your initial readout androgen receptor transcript level uh, decreases produced by a chemical compound. What cells did you choose to set up the functional screen in? Yeah, these were uh, prostate cancer cell lines. So the, the, so it was a prostate cancer cell line that happens to also express the major splice variant for the androgen receptor, the, what's called the V7 splice variant. So it, there, aren't, there are surprisingly few prostate cancer cell lines available to the community. And this is just one, one of them that happens to express both the full length and the splice variant. So it, we didn't have a lot of options, to be honest. So that, that cell line uh, fit the bill. Yeah, so what if you had chosen to look simply for compounds that cause the cells to just die or, or grow less quickly? You know, what would have happened? Yeah, I think we would have totally failed because we were using a simple electrophilic compound library that actually over time puts a lot of stress on the cells independent of the mechanism of working through the antigen receptor. So you would have had to have devised a very uh, clever and rigorous cell growth disruption experiment to tease out the structure activity relationship that was much easier to tease out in four hours after treatment by looking at the androgen receptor. You get exactly what you screen for phenotypically, right? And, and I always prefer to phenotypically screen for the most proximal biomarker of the biology I'm trying to affect, not some downstream cell growth effect, right? In this case, we knew we wanted to do, like you said, we wanted to suppress the androgen receptors. So let's look at that. Let's not look at three days later how that might affect cell growth. There were a number of subtle ways in which you enriched your ability to ask questions specifically about RNA binding proteins. You looked for RNA transcript level changes in the screen rather than protein changes. You looked for two different transcript isoforms to both be suppressed. And you looked for transcript changes quite soon after exposing the cells to the compound library within six hours. Can you help us understand why you thought RNA binding proteins would be enriched in this screen design? You know, in the time window that Ben conducted the screen, you know, as you said, he cleverly um, narrowed uh, this window to what would likely be proteins that control RNA processing stability could be localization, you know, it could be just nuclear retention. And these compounds identified uh, this interaction with this no-no RNA binding protein. 
which I thought was very unusual, unexpected actually, but amazing, uh, amazing uh, as a as an illustration of how you know powerful this uh, functional function first screen is, right? So now that we understand the setup of your phenotypic screen, there is the choice of what compounds and what library to actually use in the screen. Ben, you mentioned electrophilic compounds. These are compounds that can create covalent bonds with protein targets in the cell. And so why did you choose to start there? And how many compounds did you have in this library? Yeah, so we chose to start with electrophilic compounds because we've learned over the years that covalent chemistry has a, a rather special capacity to access pockets in the proteome that are difficult to bind with reversible ligands, maybe be shallow pockets, dynamic pockets, where the ability to latch on to a nucleophilic amino acid like a cysteine can give first uh, generation small molecules an ability to engage proteins in the cell with much higher potency than they would if they were purely reversibly binding. You know, that, at that stage of the project, you know, we only had about a 500 member electrophilic compound library in our lab. So that's what we screened. Okay, so I was gonna ask, where did Janssen come into the picture? They, they were the ones who designed the screen from the beginning. It was Songju Ku and, and Peon and Brahma Ghosh, like wonderful collaborators designed the screen. And like you said, they designed the screen with very, very purposeful, right? They're interested in like, as you articulated nicely earlier, finding ways to suppress the end receptor, right? Janssen is very, has, has a vested interest in, in addressing resistance mechanisms against androceptor receptor antagonists. So that was all available to us. And we brought our electrophilic library to them. They screened it and brought us back the hits, right? And, and that's when we started working on mechanism, right? Using chemical proteomics in our lab to figure out what the hit compounds bound. And then once we realized they bound with the structure activity relationship that matched the phenotypic data to this RNA binding protein no-no, to steal your thunder, I'll just tell our listeners that you found exactly one really exciting hit. And that hit was particularly exciting because it was the one hit that really decreased androgen receptor transcript levels while also not being generally cytotoxic to the cells. And so what ran through your mind when you first saw that data, that a single covalent binder produced yeah. a real and significant reduction in the level of AR transcript? Yeah, so that was those results that you summarized were uh, necessary for us to be interested, but actually not sufficient. So, what what drove us to get a much more excited was the structure activity relationship, right? Because whenever we've done phenotypic screening before and tried to find targets, never have we found a compound. Well, maybe others have, but we never found a compound that is single target specific, right? Out of directly off a of phenotypic screen. That's when we came to Gene hat in hand, trying to help us figure out the mechanism by which they acted on no no. And I remember Ben showing me the image of uh, this compound on paraspeckles, <laughs> and it was bizarre because you know you had a higher accumulation of the intensity of paraspeckles. Um, and when I thought that the compound would just inhibit right. no no, and therefore these would fall apart, uh, but that was not what we saw. And so I was heavily intrigued. And this is a really interesting, you know, compound protein interaction that likely affects RNA in ways we are now still trying to understand, I think. Yeah. So an experiment is nothing without its controls, and the screen really delivered on that front. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the unique stereochemical nature or you know, molecular shape of the compounds or of the lead hit that you discovered, and why that helps set the stage for the rest of your experiments. So we have to find structurally related compounds that lack the biological activity, 
If we can find those, they can be used as controls to sift through the various targets that engage the active compound to find those that are relevant to the mechanism. And there we were very fortunate, right? Because modest changes to the structure of the compound dramatically altered its activity. And we were exceptionally lucky that there was a single stereo center in the small molecule. The, the original compound was racemic, so both enantiomers were screened. But when we generated with Janssen, the separate enantiomers, one was fully active and one was totally inactive. That means you have physicochemically identical or matched that's not identical, physicochemically matched compounds that one is active, one is inactive, that you can go in and compare for target landscapes. And I think without that, we wouldn't have never figured out the mechanism, right? Having that type of, of, of paired active and inactive control compounds was really crucial to narrowing down no-no as the, as the relevant target using, using chemical proteomic methods. What did that first compound, when you both have seen a lot of compounds on their journey towards becoming medicines and drugs, when you first saw the structure of that binder from your electrophilic compound library, what came to your mind? Was, is it, wow, this is, this is on its way to being a drug? It does have drug-like properties? Or, wow, this is still pretty far away from it? Or Yeah, yeah. It, like I said, it, it's a little bit of mixed emotions, right? Because by no means do we, do we consider chloroacetamides to be on target to be a drug. But... I will say that if I, and I've said, I say this often at, at presentations as well, I had to select a single feature of small molecule interactions in the proteome that I would say is predictive of an actionable druggable pocket, okay? A druggable pocket that could go all the way to a medicine, it would be stereoselective binding to small molecules, right? So the minute I see that, the minute I see stereoselective binding to a small molecule, I think this is a druggable pocket. It doesn't mean we have the chemistry in our hands at that moment to make the drug, but it, in my view, it means drugs can be made against that pocket. So that part excited me tremendously, right? I still think as we're now, as Gene mentioned, uh, going forward with our, our work in the future, one of our goals is to find uh, higher quality electrophilic chemistry against that pocket. But I can go down that line of, of experimentation with the confidence that the pocket is capable of supporting that type of, of outcome. So once you've had, you know, a compound with this desired functional effect of suppressing androgen receptor expression, you know, the next step is to figure out how it actually might be doing this. You know, what proteins it might be interacting with, for example. So what chemical proteomic tools did you use to, to answer this question? Obviously, when you have one of the real advantages of covalent chemistry, right, is you've formed a permanent bond between the small molecule and the target in the cell. So that gives you access to chemical proteomic approaches that reversible binding compounds don't provide, right? And so we, the vast majority of chloroacetamide reactions in the proteome occur on cysteine residues. We have developed in our lab over the years broad spectrum platforms for profiling the reactivity of cysteines in native systems. Up to 15, 20,000 cysteines from 5,000 plus proteins can be inventoried in a biological system. And so what you're really looking for in that setting is, is where do these bioactive small molecules punch holes in those profiles? You know, where do they block a cysteine containing peptide from being enriched in our proteomic experiments? And that's how we end up narrowing down the relevant targets, again, looking for those cysteines that are engaged by the active compounds, but not their inactive close uh, uh, homologs or analogs. And so again, we had a single winner, right? There was a single cysteine residue among a very large number of cysteine residues across the proteome that bound to active compounds, but not to inactive compounds. Another reminder, as you mentioned, of why those inactive controls really mattered throughout this study. 
And this was a single cysteine residue, C145, on a protein called NONO, which happens to be known to be an RNA binding protein. Yeah. And it's just, I just want to pause there for a second. When you designed this whole screen, you had no idea an RNA binding protein would come out. That's right. You had no idea it would be NONO, a protein previously known to potentially regulate androgen receptor levels. You, this was just sort of a beautiful, a beautiful thing that emerged from a compound library applied to your phenotypic screen. And so now that you had a binder to no-no, the next step was to try to figure out the exact mechanism by which the covalent binder and no-no reduce androgen receptor transcript levels. And one of the first things you did to explore this topic was to genetically knock out no-no. What happened? <laughs> We thought it was going to be really simple. We thought we would just knock NONO out genetically yep. <laughs> and validate it as a target. And that actually initially didn't happen, right? Because we genetically knocked out NONO from prostate cancer cells. They, they grew just fine and they had no change in androgen receptor, right? And so that's when we realized that, you know, it might be a little more complex than we thought. And fortunately, Stefan Kaufman, the, the postdoc in our lab at that time, who led this project with, with Garrett Lindsay, did another interesting experiment, which he asked whether the no-no knockout cells still responded to the compound. And the way that, when they didn't respond to the compound, we saw no suppression of the androgen receptor, that's when we started to say, ah, this may be something other than just a simple antagonist, as Gene mentioned, not a simple antagonistic mechanism of no-no, maybe something more is happening. So I think at that moment was when we felt that we were on target, right? We, we knew we felt we had very confident on target once we knew we could get rid of no-no and block the compound effects, right? And so that told us that no-no was required for the compound activity, even though knocking no-no out didn't replicate the compound activity. Yeah, so tell us what we knew about no-no in terms of its uh, cellular activity and interaction with androgen receptor transcripts before this work was started. Yeah, there had been a little bit of work suggesting that no-no even bound physically to androgen receptor protein, as well as potentially regulating its transcripts through RNA interference type approaches. But, but it was just sort of one paper. It was not clear mechanistically how that happened. Um, and that's why we were so surprised when we genetically knocked it out constitutively that we didn't see that outcome. Now that may be explainable, right? By the time at which the, which we may get into later, the time at which the paralog proteins to no-no began to compensate, right? And, and that is probably why, I don't think it's unclear. I think Gene would probably agree with this. I don't think it's totally unclear why the genetics and the chemical biology don't align here. Right. I think there's some very clear hypotheses about why a chemical biology approach here was capable of elucidating no-no's functions in a manner in which genetics fell short. Gene, I just want to ask, you know, in your lab, you've been studying RNA binding proteins for over a decade. It was no-no a commonplace word in your lab? It was no-no a gene people knew, a protein people loved? <laughs> where, where, did, where was no-no in, in your lab's kind of knowledge space? So we had evaluated binding sites for many RNA binding proteins in the transcriptome. And no-no, uh, as with other uh, paraspeckle proteins, right? So these three proteins, SFPQ, no-no, PSPC1, they belong to this family of proteins that are scaffolded on non-coding RNAs, right? Uh, that form paraspeckles, right? And paraspeckles were discovered, I think, 2002, right, to be in the interchromatin area that were close to nuclear speckles, but, but not quite, right? And so we were studying, you know, these proteins in the context of many other RNA binding proteins. 
And so when Ben and I caught up and Ben said, here's a, here's something funny going on with no, no. I was like, Oh, you, you know, you must have some defect in, in these condensates, right? These uh, paraspecals that are present in cells. I remember we were meeting and Stefan, I think, in your lab said, but the knockouts don't, you know, do this. Compounds in, in the cells actually change paraspecal uh, resolution or formation. And that was very intriguing because we were, and we're debating back and forth. This, this is where, where I look at, you know, I think, Ben, you had coined the, the phrase, I think, neo function or something like that. Like, yeah, a, basically. A, gain a, of a new function. A dysfunction. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know what to call it, right? Dysfunction, yeah. Function. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a really good um, description here because it's, the compound's effect is not a loss of function. Gene's correct. When we first started chatting with Gene, we thought it was neo function. So we thought we're trapping yeah. no no on RNAs it doesn't normally belong, bind to, right? So neo function, the compound's making no no do something it doesn't do that that was not the mechanism in the end if you look at one of those one of the coolest results in the paper is that that it really was genes data showing that there's an incredible enrichment in the transcripts that no no binds to in the presence of the ligand for the transcripts that no 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 normally binds to in genes original eclip data so that told us that we were not stable in most cases we were not stabilizing no no binding to transcripts that it didn't normally bind to so it, you're, we're stabilizing its binding to transcripts that it normally binds to, but then it's distorting the functional outcome of that, which would presumably be the natural processing of those messages, hence converting from a, neo fun, a, a gain of neo function to a gain of dysfunction type of model, right? But without genes data, we never would have been able to separate those two models. Yeah, I think in the abstract, there was this word trapping, right? Uh, this sort of trapping of this protein on interaction. It's why I think the, the other, you know, Paradox, uh, we're not able to compensate, which I think was also very, very intriguing and, and, and sort of illuminating from the mechanistic perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a beautiful line in the paper where you say the active compounds promote androgen receptor loss through a mechanism that depends on covalent modification of C145 of no no, but this effect is prevented rather than replicated by the genetic disruption of no no. And that's, it's kind of a complicated sentence, but normally when we think of small molecule medicines that bind any residue um, on a target protein, in this case, the protein is no-no, the RNA binding protein no-no, typically we think of the small molecule as seeking to mimic genetic knockdown of the protein target no-no. And what is so provocative about the mechanism that you, your study has unearthed is that Genetic knockdown of no-no does not replicate the effect of the covalent chemical binders, but genetic knockdown of no-no does prevent the effect of those binders, um, meaning that you need no-no, you need the chemical binder, and both operate together to disrupt RNA transcript homeostasis, and in this case, produce the result of androgen receptor transcript downregulation and importantly downregulation across multiple transcript isoforms. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful but sort of unexpected kind of story. Let's go back to that C145 for just a second. What is special about that cysteine residue 145 and, and why does it sort of help us understand the mechanism here? Like at least two features are, are special in, in my mind. You know, one is it's unique to no-no. 
not found in the paralogs. So the paralogs that Gene mentioned earlier in this family, PSPC1 and SFPQ, despite having a reasonably high degree of sequence identity shared with NONO, they do not have that cysteine, right? So that means that those compounds end up covalently binding NONO, but not the paralogs. And that's, I think, incredibly important for the mechanisms. I think if they bound all three, you would have just had a gross cytotoxic, right? And then the other feature that's interesting is that pocket that the cysteine belongs to is sort of nestled in between the two RNA binding domains of, of NONO, suggesting that it's poised to have an impact on how NONO binds RNAs, which we ultimately you know, showed with Gene's lab. Gene's lab showed that the compound could stabilize you know, binding of NONO to RNAs. And, and we were able to show, of course, if we mutate that cysteine to serine, the compound loses its activity. In other words, if you express the C145 serine mutant of NONO, it, it essentially rescues the effect of the compound on, or blocks the effect of the compound on androgen receptor and other uh, uh, transcript effects as well. So there were approximately a thousand transcripts that were modified though, you know, not just the androgen receptor. So what does this actually mean in the context of, of these results? Yeah, so that, again, getting back to my original adage that you get what you screen for, right? Um, in principle, you could have discovered these this mechanism through screening some of those other transcripts as well, right? So NONO is clearly having an effect on when liganded with these covalent compounds, an effect on the transcriptome that is that is pretty substantial. So I think that's biologically really interesting. From a translational perspective, I think it it is concerning, right? It means that if we want to leverage this mechanism to more specifically regulate a transcript like the antigen receptor in prostate cancer, we have more work to do, right? We have to be able to understand, is it possible to create variants of ligand, alternative ligands that will bind this pocket, but produce a subset of the transcriptional regulatory effects that our current ligands do. And I'm not totally pessimistic about that outcome, right? That's, you know, to draw on analogies of known drugs, right? Uh, you know, Revlimid started out as thalidomide, right? And thalidomide uh, downregulated too many proteins working through Cerebellon and ultimately was honed to have a higher degree of substrate specificity for its action, and that ultimately led to transformative drugs. So it, it's not, in my mind, unreasonable to, to, to hypothesize that different types of chemistry binding that pocket could produce different spectra of transcriptional regulation. And can we hone in on those that will be more specific to transcripts of therapeutic relevance? And that's one of our major goals. Right. There's a variety of chemical optimization you could find other binders to that same residue, which you've now described as so critically important to androgen receptor transcript regulation downstream of no-no. And you're saying maybe you could find compounds that would create more specific targeted transcriptomic changes than the tool compound, really, that happened to be in this library. I want to go back to one other kind of functional readout. We talked about how we wouldn't have wanted to set up a phenotypic screen that just looked for prostate cancer cell death, um, because that wouldn't have really probed very specific mechanistic biology. In fact, we selected against cytotoxic compounds for the purposes of, of getting to specific biologies here. You did, though, later in the study, ask the question, what is the effect of this lead, of this hit from the library on not only androgen receptor mRNA transcript levels, not only androgen receptor protein levels, but also cell growth. Yeah. So you also did kind of run, once you had the compound, you did ultimately look at 
does it flow the growth of the prostate cancer cells? Yes. And you saw an effect, but help us contextualize that effect. Was that a profound effect? How, how do you think about that? Right. Well, so the initial screen, we wouldn't have picked up that type of growth effect because that's not a cytotoxic effect. That's sort of what I would call a cytostatic effect, right? That's a blockade of proliferation. That's not an active induction of apoptosis, for example, in six or eight hours, which is what we wanted to definitely avoid. Because actually, you can get rid of the you can knock the prostate cancer, you're not androceptor out of prostate cancer cells, you're not going to cause them an apoptosis in six hours, right? So the mechanism by which even just losing androgen receptor leads to blockades of cell growth is, is, is more subtle than that. When we later on had more our, our tool compounds, it, certainly we wanted to see, could they show stereoselective differences in cell growth, especially after realizing we were rewiring their oncogenic networks transcriptionally in such a profound way? So on the one hand, yeah, it's interesting that we see a blockade in cell growth. Is it surprising? I mean, if you're rewiring that many transcripts, probably not. I don't think that's specific to the androreceptor effect. It's probably much more relevant to the broad transcriptional out outcomes that we have. But if you look at that data, you know, the, the challenge, of course, is you only have about a three or four fold window before those chloracetamides will start at a higher dose or concentration killing or, not, or blocking the growth of virtually all, all cells, right? And I think that's where one has to recognize that these are early stage tools, right? And ultimately, if one wants to create a more specific blocker of cancer growth, one has to be able to, I think, refine not only the overall reactivity of the compounds, so they're more selective for no-no, but ultimately probably find a way to work through no-no to regulate fewer transcripts, right? Otherwise, I think, I, I don't have any doubts that we could make highly specific no-no ligands that act as, as um, glorified chemotherapies. Right, that that through, acting only through no-no suppress the growth of any cell that proliferates. I, I don't really want to do that. I want to create a, a mechanism that will have more specificity to suppress prostate cancer cell growth, but not other cells. And that's where we're going to have to work on refining the specificity for subsets of transcripts. Right? I think there are like two more results that I think we want to touch on. The one is the presence of those paralogs and how they're compensating, and then the mechanism of the of the molecule. So you know that the molecule hits no-no. You know that. When it hits no-no, it leads to a decrease in androgen receptor transcript levels. But when you selectively deplete no-no via the CRISPR knockout screen you did, you don't see a similar transcript depleting effect with or without the small molecule, which is really fascinating. So we mentioned earlier that there are thousands of RNA binding proteins. So walk us through how the team thought about what might be going on here. Yeah, so we were fortunate that there was already a little bit of literature to suggest that when no-no is, for instance, knocked out of mice, the paralog proteins, SFPQ and PSPC1, go up. Okay, so they actually go up in expression. There really wasn't any formal test yet that had been done to suggest that that was comp compensation or to show that was compensation, but it was implied. And so what was fascinating, one of the most fascinating results in the paper, actually, that, that to me is kind of a nuanced result for the maybe the non-expert, is all the studies that have been done with compensation before or thoughts of compensation were done with chronic genetic models. So we were surprised to note that within 24 hours of treating with our compounds, PSPC1 and SFPQ also go up. So somehow, even though no-no is still there, as Gene said earlier, trapped on transcripts, the cell is sensing no-no is not functioning properly and is upregulating these very same paralogs that the genetic... So the one place for the... In other words, the one place for the genetic knockout and the compound align is on the changes in the expression of the paralogs. Okay, so that tells us that the cell is experiencing no-no loss of function in both cases, in my view. That's why I say it's a gain of dysfunction, not a gain of function, right? So somehow the cell knows that the ligands are perturbing no-no function. It's upregulating the paralogs, but the problem is no-no is still there, bound to transcripts. And so our model is that the paralogs simply cannot substitute or take over for no-no 
despite being upregulated, right? And, and to see that within the course of a single day. And the paralogs do not have that cysteine-145 residue. So they're right, they're not bound by the compound. Exactly. There is genetic data that predicts this compensation, and it's buried in the dependency map at the Broad. If you look at the dependency map at the Broad and ask, are there any cancer lines that depend on no-no? There are a handful, right? Unlike the lines that we study, which don't give a crap whether you lose no-no or not, right, genetically. There are a handful that do. And you know what those cell lines have? They have deleterious mutations in SFPQ and or PSPC1, right? So the dependency map already tells you that there is a genetic synthetic lethality relationship, if you will, between these amongst these paralogs, right? And so our compounds are essentially illuminating that pharmacologically, right? By not allowing the compensation to take place in cell lines where all three of the proteins are wild type. Right. So it also tells you, interestingly, if in genes in our continued collaboration, if we're lucky enough to stumble upon pure antagonists, right, compounds that, as Gene mentioned earlier, we thought these would work at, just knock no-no off of RNA, yep. those should be synthetically lethal in cancer cells that have deleterious mutations in SFPQ and PSPC, PSPC1, which would be very interesting to, to explore because those cancer lines do exist. I think in the, in the general sort of way where you think about paralogs very differently now, right, because one could argue for RBPs, most RBPs have parallels, exactly, right? And and actually, a lot of the RBPs bind not only their own RNA but also the RNA of their parallels, right? And so this may be a, a you know a general way of thinking about how to drug RBPs, right? And this is you know really illuminated by this study. Yeah, we're we're becoming very preoccupied in our lab now with with paralog restricted ligandable <laughs> systems, right? For this reason, right? Because it provides an, a lens into subsets of proteins that may be more difficult to study genetically due to rapid paralog compensation, right? Yeah, so let's talk about a little bit about next steps from here. So, you know, is this molecule that you've discovered a drug candidate for cancer patients today? Likely not, but, you know, help us understand why. Yeah, there's a definitive no to that, right? It has, it, it's, we have a lot to do biologically and chemically to translate these findings in the, into a potential therapeutic path. But we're excited to take on that challenge. Like, as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the, the SAR for the pocket showing stereoselective binding leads me to believe that you can absolutely make advanced tool compounds and drugs against this pocket. The question is, how do you refine them for specificity for transcripts of interest? And that's where I think, you know, one could imagine that maybe as you exit that pocket, you might even begin to interface with local RNA structure, right? And if you can do that, can you create an SAR that is almost like a glue-like mechanism where you're not only binding to no-no, but also to the RNA transcripts in a way that can restrict or, or restrain the interactions of, of this pocket so that it, it selectively modulates a subset of transcripts of interest, right? And I think that's something that we're, we're very excited about. You know, I mentioned very early on that we were lucky here. And we were, we were lucky because if you look back at our original uh, small molecule library, the five compounds, um, you know, only a handful of them had had stereocenters, right? So it, we were very fortunate that one of those compounds that had a stereocenter happened to be the hit because it allowed us to, to understand the enantio or stereoselectivity of the interaction. And, and we're not going to subject ourselves to that type of uh, opportunistic discovery going forward. So it really has informed our next generation libraries. So all of our covalent chemistry libraries going forward now all have stereochemistry built into them so we can you know enjoy or benefit from the structure activity relationships that provides if we do more phenotypic screens, right, to, to guide us for, for um, mechanism of action studies, like we can do a gene. Like if you look at all the studies with a gene, always the inactive stereoisomer is being run side by side, right? So it's just an incredibly useful pair of tools. Super interesting that the biology experimentation kind of made acute the need for beautiful controls. And now yeah. that's led to a change in how Absolutely. you design your 
chemical screening strategy. Let's go back to the topic of which patients could benefit most from this therapeutic strategy. So you talked a little bit about potential synthetic lethality and those contexts, but you've got on your hands a chemical strategy, and I'll call it a strategy still, not a compound, but a chemical strategy to perturb the RNA binding protein no-no at a specific residue, which we believe produces downregulation of the androgen receptor transcript and protein, and presumably signaling through the androgen receptor. And so which, which cancer patients stand to potentially benefit from this therapeutic strategy? Right, so if you can refine that, that selectivity to, to hone in on that, those transcripts, those are the patients that have gone through first or second line anti-androgen therapies, right? And, and there is no drug for today, right? Once, once you get to the point where the cancers are resistant to the anti-androgen therapies that are out there, the androgen antagonists, you know, they have nothing else to, to go to in a targeted fashion, right? They'll end up on like chemotherapies and things like that, but those don't, also don't have a durability. So we would, we would envision those patients as being a very provocative uh, group to treat with the type of drug that, that, that you articulated that can be developed. You know, if you look at the transcripts that, that Nono's regulating with those ligands beyond the androgen receptor and some other very interesting transcriptional regulators, right, that could also lead to their own sort of focused targeted therapies in the event that one can refine the selectivity for, you know, subsets of transcripts. So I think that there's more than just the androgen receptor in there that would be of interest, depending on how the how successful we are at, at converting this into a sort of a programmable, if you will, system over time which is a long ways away, obviously, but that's the ultimate goal. And do you think the patients would need to have mutations in the paralogs? No, they don't, right? Because no-no dominates, right? There, there's no reason to have to worry about that, right? If you could, if you could make drugs that focus through this mechanism, no-no on the androgen receptor transcripts and, and sort of relieve the effects on other transcripts, the paralogs won't be able to over, override it, right? I mean, you'll ultimately get resistance mechanisms through another way, like mutating the cysteine and no-no, right? They'll, but but You'll get resistance mechanisms to any cancer drug, right? I'm, I'm more than happy to, to have to work through the resistance mechanisms of a successful drug. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what cancer drug development's about. So, Gene, what's next for the biology? What's next in your lab? What do we not know yet that's gnawing at you from a biological perspective? I think one of the, the key takeaways uh, from this work with Ben is actually a realization that, you know, one of the, the assays that we use here to to help us think about the mechanism, which is this cross-linking IP assay, a sort of binding assay in a transcriptome-wide manner, is giving us uh, insights, right, as, as maybe a potential way to identify uh, more compounds, right, but sort of with a, a binding-first approach, right? Imagine if you can uh, start with binding for, you know, any compound uh, that have strong liganding, right, as Ben has, has uh, pointed out to me, lots of RBPs have strong liganding sites, then, then immediately you have subsets of RNA transcripts with aberrant or maybe lost or gain of, of interactions on them for a specific ligand. And if you can scale this up, you know, in a, in a way which we think we can now, right, then you can uh, launch a very different an approach to thinking about, you know, in this case, RBP-specific medicine, right? That, that was one of the most provocative outcomes of this study was recognizing the power of genes eclip platform for as a general, what I would call functional assay for RNA binding proteins, right? Uh, uh, you know, I'm a huge believer that, 
that the terms druggable and undruggable are kind of irrelevant. The terms that we really, when we, when we say that, what we're really talking about are assayable and unassayable. Yeah, unass and right. the proteins that remain undruggable today are not assayable. So we don't know how to assay them right. for the functional effects of small molecules, right? And so for us, we've developed some pretty decent platforms for binding first ligand discovery, but we're still left having to assay the effects of those small molecules on their proteins. And what we really need are platforms like the one Gene's created that can allow you to look at, at the functional effects of hundreds of proteins through the lens of their ability to bind RNA and how drugs or small molecules affect that interaction. So I think it's an extremely exciting future direction. Could have discovered these ligands that way, right? If you yes. think about the antidepressant, yep. I could have gone to Gene and said, hey, Gene, I have a covalent ligand that binds no-no. Can we run an eclip experiment on it? And it would have told us that it was functional. We, we would not do any of the other stuff we would have known, right? Yeah, that's true. A lot of, our, a lot of the targets we now know and love are likely to be kind of rediscovered in these orthogonal ways through this new lens of RNA binding proteins. One last question, let's just zoom out from oncology for a second. RNA binding proteins are sort of ubiquitous in the cell, maybe yeah. a quarter of the proteome is thought to bind nucleic acid and RNA in particular. What is the role of this whole class that you've now shown you can <laughs> perturb, query, bind um, in all kinds of ways, assay, as you said, Ben. What is the role of this whole class of proteins um, in human disease more broadly? Just give us a, a, a teaser. I think all these proteins do, in some sense, everything, and in, in other sense, nothing, right? So, so you know, the, I think individual RBPs, they moonlight in many different uh, ways of modulating gene expression. Uh, and, and that's number one. And number two, RBPs um, across the board uh, have subsets of RNAs that they are involved in regulating, uh, but some just bind and don't do anything, right? And so I, I think, you know, a key bottleneck in the RBP field is trying to understand which RBPs are really critically important for a particularly particular cell type or cell fate, right? Or a context, right? And I think that, you know, identification will be accelerated by actually having you know, chemistry to them uh, and, and in, in parallel with knockout experiments and evaluation of what happens to their RNA targets, right? And so RBPs, you know, these days have been implicated in everything from autism, neurodevelopment, to neurodegeneration, to metabolic diseases, immunology, and, and you know, uh, you know car cardiomyopathy. So, so not in just oncology. And, and we really don't know what many of these RBPs are doing, but we can get a, a faster sense of this now with accelerated methods development and, and now with new chemistry. So very excited to, to work with Ben here to you know, crack the field open. Yeah. Well, what a phenomenal place to end. What a fascinating set of targets and proteins and biology, these central sort of nodes of regulation of the entire transcriptome and subsequently proteome, RNA binding proteins. Thank you so much, Ben and Jean, for joining us today on Bioins World Journal Club. And I hope everybody has a chance to read this paper. Thanks. Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures.